Thanks for pressing play. He's back. The world's top technology analyst, the founder of uh, Constellation Research, host of the very popular Disrupt TV, and best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Surviving and Thriving in a World of Digital Giants. My buddy, the legendary Ray Wong, is here. And we go deep on a whole, whole, <laughs> a whole bunch of topics, including uh, what Ray calls the metaverse economy and why it will be a $21.7 trillion monster new category. What everybody needs to know and understand about Web3, Jack Dorsey versus Mark Zuckerberg versus Mark Andreessen. Why it's no longer about fang companies, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, and who the new digital leaders are that have replaced fang. We also talk about domestic versus international terrorism uh, and uh, the mother truckers. What's going on? We debate what's going on in Canada and trucking, quote unquote, convoys that are emerging around the world. We uh, revisit the origins of uh, C-19 and discuss, is it a bioweapon? Was it a lab mistake or a bat? We talk about the China, Russia uh, and emerging cyber wars and the incredible need for more authentic dialogue. Also, pay special attention to what Ray is calling the great refactoring and why this is the greatest time in history to be an innovator, entrepreneur, and category designer. This is Christopher Lockett, Follow Your Different, the oddcast exclusively for those people in business who value real, different dialogue with the legendary people making our world a different place. Now, imagine that your friends were your real friends, that is to say your digital friends. Welcome to HalloApp. HalloApp is the first real relationship network, real people, real life, in real private, with no ads, and you are not the product. Check out HalloApp.com, H-A-L-L-O-A-P-P.com, or search HalloApp on your smartphone app store. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Ray, how are you, brother? Oh, my God. How you doing? It's been a while since we got lunch. I know. That was a really fun lunch, too. Burgers and IPAs in Los Gatos. Those are some really good IPAs. The right? burgers were great, too, but the IPA was just exquisite. My favorite, actually, Uncle Dave's IPA. And um, we uh, they're here in Santa Cruz. Uh, the, the company's called um, Discretion Brewing. And uh, we're having a little Super Bowl party, COVID-appropriate. Uh, <laughs> And, um, <laughs> and I was just there, we went there, uh, last night actually, and bought, um, four cases of uncle Dave's IPA, two of the big boy, tall boys, and two cases of the oh, small wow. boys. Yeah. I'm a fan. That's a good IPA. And plus, you know, we, we had some good discussions and, uh, you know, shout outs to Liz Miller. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, here's the other thing I'll do now, now that I know you're a fan of uncle Dave's IPA, um, next time we get together, I'll, I'll bring you a case. Oh, that's, I'm in. I'm yeah. in. So, but a lot to talk about. A lot What's to talk on? about. Where, where would you like to start, handsome? You know, let's talk trends or metaverse economy. Okay. Uh, well, let's take metaverse economy. Tell me about your current thinking on the metaverse and the metaverse economy. 
So here's the thing. A lot of people think of the metaverse as, hey, it's the cool goggles. It's like, you know, the AR, VR things. It's, you know, I mean, that's where they start, right? And they think it's gaming. They think it's like all fun stuff. And they don't realize that this is actually the beginning of something bigger. Like the metaverse on its own, yes, it's 2D to 3D. But the metaverse economy is something that we're seeing as a $21.7 trillion market by 2030. Now to put that in- Hold on, slow down, Hanson. What was that number? (laughs) 21.7 trillion, okay? Now to put that into perspective, and I know that's a really big number because if you take all the publicly traded, you know, tech companies, the number is 24 trillion today, right? So it's a big number. So by the end of the decade, most of what we see today in terms of the internet will be sitting in this metaverse economy. And that metaverse economy is a little bit different. And, you know, that's everything that's from you know, the interfaces, brain machine and human APIs, right? So we'll get the glasses, we'll get to connecting to your brain like Elon Musk, right? With the Neuralink. Um, we've got metaverses, digital experiences and worlds. And we know that's going to be like gaming companies and sports franchisees and, you know, companies like Disney and movie studios. And of course, we'll see digital twins and other things pop up. We've got DAOs, which are decentralized autonomous organizations. And these are the governance models, the memberships, uh, the creator economy, like how do you get paid for things, the tokenization that occurs. And then there's the blockchain that's providing the infrastructure for a lot of these contracts and how money gets passed along or value exchange in crypto tech. And then the last piece is the Web3, all the decentralized access, self-sovereignty, the new, you know, the new way of actually, you know, building the internet. That's the foundation of what's going on. And so that's what the 21 trillion is that we're talking about. And then, of course, the creator economies. And then, of course, the consumption networks are on the other end. And that's what we call this metaverse economy. It's not just the gaming or the devices or the hardware. It's a lot bigger than that. Wow. There's a a ton to unpack there, Handsome. So um, maybe let's start with what you, you touched on it there towards the end, what maybe we could call, and if this is the wrong way to think about it, tell me the sort of the ethos of web three. And let me test this on you. You know, in the beginning of the, let's call it the modern era of Silicon Valley, Apple and, and, and beyond uh, uh, personal computing, uh, uh, Microsoft, et cetera, et cetera. There was a sort of um, hippie esque uh, idealism around individual empowerment and collaborating with people and power to the people because, you know, in the famous Apple ad, we're going to smash the mainframe and everybody's going and Microsoft, a personal computer on every desktop. And so there was a little, if, if not more than a little sort of uh, hippie personal empowerment, empower the people type uh, ethos in the early days, certainly of personal computing. And some people argue that that got lost over time and that Web3 is an opportunity to kind of uh, decentralize, take power out of uh, the hands of a few and distribute it to the many and, and you know, sort of get back to that more hippie-esque uh, do-gooder individual empowerment. Nobody's in control. It's a collective, et cetera, et cetera, mindset. What's your reaction to all of that, Ray? Oh, I'm in complete agreement. There's a movement, um, just like there was a movement for PCs to like break us free from the mainframes and those evil big, you know, 
computing empires, right? I think they're all, I forgot the term for it, but there was a name for all these like Burroughs and Unisys and IBM, the bunch. That's what it is. Burroughs, Unisys, NCR. I mean, control data systems, Honeywell, right? It was to get you out of the bunch, right? And and that was one way. Um, and, and I agree, right? There is a chance to rebuild what we see as the internet going forward. And that's where the Web 3.0 ethos is. But we have to go back and look at, we, we had this in 19, 83. I mean, when we got to TCP IP and Vint Cerf and, you know, the beginning of the internet, and that's what we call the age of innocence, right? This age of digital innocence from 1989 to 2005 was, hey, let's connect people. Let's connect pages. Let's bring everyone together. Let's take these like chat rooms and BBSs and bring them all together, right? And we had, you know, email and static websites and AOL, right? I mean, that's age of, that's the age of digital innocence. Then we have the age of digital giants, right? 2005 to 2020. And these folks built commerce and ad supported business models. They sold out your data. They gave you interactive experiences and they suddenly, you know, concentrated a huge amount of power in the hands of the sellers and marketplace operators and privacy and consent were just left in the dust. And so we're now entering this age of the metaverse, which you're talking about, right? It's a little hippie. It's a little bit libertarian. It's a little bit about let's go take out these big centralized structures. And this age of the metaverse, right? It's being defined right now, right? What are those Web 3.0 standards? What are the operating principles that are there, right? How do we actually make these things come into place and how we build future digital experiences that create a frame shift in the power dynamic along buy side, sell side, multi-sided marketplaces. Um, and, you know, these metaverse economies by design are hopefully going to favor privacy and anonymity of the user, right? It's going to be about, you know, creating transparency of the seller and protecting your privacy in a transaction. That's the intent, right? But like all good technology, you know, it's really about the people behind the intent. Now, you and I have talked in the past about sort of uh, this coming, and uh, one of the elements is this idea that we own our own data, and that there are sort of, uh, uh, you tell me how you, how you want to think about it, you know, sort of data human rights, so to speak. Um, and, and we see Apple starting down that path. I mean, um, Facebook just missed their numbers horribly, largest single day decline in American history. And in part, there's many things about that. Maybe you can help me unpack it. But part of what I saw here was the impact of my, of Apple allowing you and I as iPhone users to opt out of being tracked uh, in a very prominent way. And as a result, Facebook advertising is meaningfully, and maybe you'll educate me here, seems meaningfully less effective. Um, and that sort of at least seems to be a beginning of a uh, empowerment um, towards the user, you and I, on having a say in who and how our data gets used. Is this, a, is this the trend? This is one of many trends, but it's an important one, right? I mean, taking 10 billion out of Facebook's ad stream is huge, right? And what Apple's basically said is you can make a choice. You want to go ad supported, go ad supported. But if you want to go subscription based, we're going to provide you a model where we protect your privacy. They've gone even further by creating this thing called iCloud private relay. And what that does is allow you to keep your privacy over the internet, right? It's basically figures out how to actually create IP addresses, identity and location and mask that and actually deliver transport, you know, the, the basically transport and security protocols that are needed, right? So, so that's the aspect. And so Apple's on the other end of the spectrum saying, hey, we're going to protect your privacy. We're going to encrypt your email. We're going to encrypt everything so that 
you know, even the government might, might not be able to crack your iPhone. So, so they're going down the other way. So they're at polar opposite ends of this conversation about where the future is. And it seems like, uh, I don't know, you tell me, um, Apple seems to have won round one against Facebook in this uh, new battle over privacy and uh, ownership of our data. Apple has round one and round two. We'll see what happens. Um, you know, there's going to be quite many rounds here. Uh, and we're going to have to see what happens when we get into, you know, what Facebook has been calling their metaverse, right? What are they going to do when they enter that? Is that going to be different? Uh, but yes, Apple is definitely seen as the champion of privacy and champion of the individual uh, to date. And it seems like another big thing that was a contributor to, uh, to Facebook's uh, miss in their most recent quarter was a meaningful drop off in users and usage. Tell me what you make of that. So we're at a saturation point, both Facebook and Netflix, there have declining subscriber growth. It's not like they're not adding users. They're adding them at 1.9% and we're used to them adding them at 30%, right? And that's been coming down over the last four to five years. And when you do that, right? People get skittish. Investors are like, oh no, this place isn't growing. This is no longer a growth stock. It's it's a value stock, right? And and that shifts all your multiples. That along with the fact that interest rate yields on the ten year are now at two percent. People are freaking out about, hey, you know, how do we evaluate these tech companies and their P price to earnings ratios? The multiples are coming down because the interest rates are going up. I love the way your brain works. <laughs> So um, as we think about the metaverse, obviously, Facebook's move was extraordinary. We wrote about it in Category Pirates, and our theory was essentially the following. Uh, number one, this was the first time in history that a trillion-dollar company at the time uh, had come out and made such a big, bold, new category move. And so from a pure sort of category design perspective, it was really very impressive. However, there's a giant asterisk on all of that, which is um, if you look at the, the data, and, and we did, uh, there's a lot of research out there, you, you know better than me, that Facebook is either the most distrusted tech company and even the most distrusted company um, in the world. And if not the most, you know, very high on that list, depending on whose list you want to look at. And so as we think about this, can a company that has shown itself, in our opinion, to be run by mercenaries who clearly this move, if you want to take a more cynical view of mercenaries in this regard, is all about dealing with that growth that decline that you just talked about and having us live much more of our digital life in a uh, Zuck world. And most people don't trust Facebook. And so there's a lot of debate now around, well, are people really going to increase their usage of Facebook uh, technologies and brands in this deeply immersive new world uh, so they can monetize us even further? Um, or is the distrust in Facebook going to make this metaverse move highly unlikely for them to succeed? Or how do you think about it? No, those are great questions. I mean, they're really deep questions. And, you know, let's let's start with the demos, right? People using Facebook are probably 35 and above, right? The young'uns aren't doing that. The kids aren't on there. The kids are on TikTok. They're on Discord. They're on everything else. 
you know, across the world, well, WeChat super popular, WhatsApp super popular. Um, those are probably two big chat apps that are there. Instagram's very popular still. Um, and so there are people on the networks, they're sharing things and, you know, they're consuming things and, you know, they, they definitely are buying things. The question is, can they keep up the growth, right? In order to be a true digital giant, you're growing 30 to 40% year over year. And they're not doing that. And, and I think that's the biggest, you know, dilemma. The second dilemma is the reputation. They changed their name to Meta because the Facebook brand was already tarnished and they wanted to fix that. And they worked really hard to come up with something different and a story behind that. And maybe they'll get there, right? If they had succeeded with Libra and having a cryptocurrency and getting that out the door, uh, they would have been fine. But but right now, I mean, there's a big reshuffling going on inside at Facebook. They're trying to figure out who they are. There is no clear, articulate vision of what that metaverse is, right? They knew who they were when they built Facebook, right? And and I think they're looking for that. And you see people leave, like Peter Thiel's left. Oh, that's kind of interesting. Why would he leave? Okay, maybe there's nothing interesting going on there. Maybe something else is happening. Don't know, right? And and you also see, you know, that, you know, other companies are starting to gain ground on them, you know, in terms of adding, you know, users and monthly active users in that kind of way. So, so we got, they've got a challenge, right? When you're losing subscriber growth, you know, that's part of it. And look, they've gone to almost a trillion in market cap to 630 billion. That's, that's a huge deal. Like we took them off. We said Fang was dead uh, because we lost Facebook and we lost Netflix, right? They're no longer important. It's now Matana. I mean, it's the Hebrew word, word for gift, uh, but you know, you got Microsoft, you got Apple, you got Tesla, you got you know, Amazon, you got you know, Nvidia, you got Alphabet. Those are the six biggest tech companies by market cap now. Motana, I like that. Let me circle back quickly to the crypto move that they tried to make, Facebook slash Meta tried to make uh, a while back now on Libra. One of the things I remember got reported at the time was they part of why they shelved it was this trust issue that people were like, NFW, are we going to trust Zuckerberg with, with our money? He's already monetizing our lives. We don't want him in our finances. That That's one of the narratives I remember. But um, what do you think was part of the demise of them trying to create their own crypto? I don't think they went about it the wrong way. Um, they really tried to involve everyone up front, get them engaged. And I mean, they wanted all the buy-in. I mean, what they really should have done was created a point and barter system and they could have gotten away with it, right? You've heard me talk about this before, right? Like I long, long time back, we wanted to buy an air airline mileage program, right? I mean, loyalty points would be the place we would start and they could have created a Facebook currency, tokenize that and then assign some value against that. And then they wouldn't, wouldn't become a bank and get into all those types of trouble that they would be. They totally missed that, right? That's how I would have done it. And so, you know, if you remember the example, it's I want to go buy an airline mileage program. It's a penny per mile. That would be basically my stable coin, right? And then build that stable coin. And then you could redeem at one to five, one to 10 for different types of things. And I'd start creating a token economic model based on, you know, hey, you liked something. Okay. You get a point. Hey, you recommended something. You get two points. Oh, you want to attend this really cool meeting with Chris live one-on-one? -on -one? Lockhead live in the flesh. Okay, fine. You pay 10 points, right? So you can build that kind of stuff. They didn't do that. It's so fascinating. And, and what people don't um, often think about is if you kind of open the aperture of your brain, the reality is airline points, you could argue, it's a stretch, were the first major uh, cryptocurrency because they were a digital 
currency that you earn by doing business with a company. And to your point, if you had can, and now we can use that currency to do things, not just travel on planes. I mean, through credit cards and the like, we can go buy a sofa with that shit if we want. And so um, for all practical purposes, the airlines and credit card companies created the first large scale crypto and to further underscore how smart I think you are. And I can't remember if we talked about this or not. You probably, you probably told me this, but um, during the pandemic, when the airlines during the meat of the pandemic, anyway, where the airlines were in trouble, they were able to get loans using their um, miles as collateral. And those, uh, and if I remember right, you're nodding your head. In many cases, the, the mileage points business was more valuable and more um, secureable or whatever the right word is. It was bigger. I mean, it's ridiculous. Like, like I've, I've told people, like, I want to go buy a small airline mileage program, whether it's Star Alliance or Sky Team or One World. And what I'm going to do is basically, you know, convert that into the world's largest cryptocurrency on day one. It's tax-free cross-border value exchange to 700 million members on day one. I mean, that alone is pretty powerful. And the fact that you allocate a penny per mile, that means this isn't a Ponzi scheme like 99.99% of the NFTs in cryptocurrencies. It's real, right? And it's also, you've got retailers, financial services, event, you know, like entertainment companies, travel, media, all in one network. And then I think we talked about this last time, you'd become the biggest first party ad network. Forget the cookie apocalypse, right? We got first party ad network. You're already in. And then, of course, you know, the, the thing for good that would be fun is 2.2 billion people that are unbanked suddenly have a way to barter and pay for things, right? That would be the coolest thing, right? You connect in the mobile phone, you got internet access, boom, you don't have to pay usury on these like, you know, weird loans and, you know, middlemen that are actually delivering no value to, you know, exchange your money. So. And so uh, this is probably gross oversimplification, but the fact that the airlines have not done this. And to some of us, this move or a move in this direction seems pretty obvious and pretty extraordinary. And you could spin out Star Alliance as a separate publicly traded company that would be worth uh, meaningfully more than all of the airlines that participate in it on day one. Um, is the reason they haven't done this as simple as uh, all these airlines are run by um, native analogs who are in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, and they don't understand the native digital slash metaverse crypto web three future. I think they kind of get it, you know, but they don't really fully embrace it. Like Singapore Airlines has something in their crypto, like a crypto thing for their, you know, Chris Miles. Uh, but, you know, you talk to, you know, like, you know, Doug Parker, Scott Kirby or Ed Bastian. You're like, guys, you know, we're going to go build this cryptocurrency based on your airline mileage. And they're like, oh, well, you know, I'm not sure. Right. And if, you, if you're listening and you want to do it, call me up. I can show you how to do it. Like, like you know, and, and if you're looking at, you know, Stephen, uh, you know, Squarey, right? Right? The guy in charge of American Express, like he's in the right position to do that. He's like the broker between all these exchange and point systems. Like they should be going out to build that, you know, if no one else does. So, you know, there's just lots of opportunities here. Yeah. I mean, to your point, you know, where's Citibank on this stuff? And like where they're all sitting on these massive points businesses that could be brought forward in this way. And yet we don't hear them doing anywhere near um, that level of boldness. Now, switching topics a little bit, I found it fascinating shortly after the meta move at Facebook by Zuckerberg. Of course, Jack Dorsey leaves Twitter 
and uh, focuses on Square, which he renames Block as a clear nod to the uh, blockchain world underpinning Web3. And he's evangelizing this ethos that we talked about. And so at that level, are we seeing round two of the fight between Zuckerberg and Dorsey? You know, Twitter and Facebook uh, fought for whose kind of um, category design of what a social network should be. Uh, and, and they both ended up, of course, creating their own niches, if you want to call them that, or mega, mega categories. Uh, and, and, and Twitter and Facebook are viewed today as different assets, and many people have both. Um, are we going to see the Dorsey... Uh, distributed, uh, hippie, uh, original Silicon Valley ethos move here, decentralized move here, be the future? Or are we going to see this command and control that clearly Zuckerberg is setting us up? And is is that how the fight's going to play out? Or how do you think about it? Enter Mark Andreessen. Let's take Jack and Mark Andreessen. That's the bigger fight, right? I mean, this started when Dorsey goes out and says, you don't own Web3. The VCs and their LPs do. And that was a jab at Andreessen. So it's it's much bigger, which is basically saying that, you know, while Andreessen's been doubling down in the world of crypto and Web3 and all these other areas, you know, Dorsey's on the other end. He's trying to free up the web. He's basically using block and saying, hey, let's go out and decentralize things, make things free, go back to the original intent of what the web was supposed to be, right? And and that really just got Andreas and all PO'd. Right. It was just interesting. I mean, it was just going after him. And that's the big fight. The question was, hey, who's who's investing where and what's going on? And really, you know, Dorsey's like anti VCs trying to figure out what's going on. And Andreessen's, you know, basically saying, hey, we're going to corner the market in the crypto space. It's so interesting now. And I don't mean this as argumentatively as it might sound towards Dorsey. But, you know, there's a scuba diving expression that says you can't suck and blow at the same time. And the thing about this that I find interesting is, unless I missed it, um, you like that one, right? (laughs) I love that one, but the visualization is just going through my head, but keep going. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The interesting thing, unless I missed it, is when Dorsey changed square to block and embarked sort of uh, on this new category design, um, unless I missed it, he didn't turn block into a dot org. And so it's a profit-making business. It's a market cap driving business. And so it seems a little bit interesting to me that he shits on Andreessen for being a venture capitalist trying to um, fund this thing and back a whole series of companies. I mean, they've made countless Web3 uh, investments at Andreessen, and they're not doing it because they're Mother Teresa, but neither is Jack. So how do you rationalize these two arguments in your head? They're coming at it from different areas. And I would say like Jack is still more of a utopian in the view of where Web 3.0 is supposed to be. And Andreessen's like, we're going to make a ton of money. And, and that's really the difference that's going on there. The interesting thing about the Andreessen position is um, that's not how he got started, right? No, no. I mean, it is completely different over there. If we would talk to startups about, you know, how things are at Andreessen and what's going on. I mean, he pumps a lot of attention to the startups. He gets them up and running. If they fail, he just drops them and moves on, right? That wasn't the old Andreessen Horowitz model. I mean, and so, I mean, a lot of startup founders won't publicly say that, but what we're hearing is just that, you know, they're just abandoned, right? And and a great example is Clubhouse, right? Solely pumped up, 
right? Let's go do it. And then suddenly it just failed and they've just moved on. I mean, you don't see much interest there anymore. So they've moved on to the next project. I mean, they're just so busy. And I think that's what it's come down to. I mean, there are quality VC firms, right? Like Sequoia, you know, Insight Ventures or folks that are doing some good stuff. Like you trust their word. Um, and, you know, there, there's just different things going on. I mean, so, I mean, but there are a handful of, you know, folks that, you know, I mean, the name is still the name. Like Andreessen and Horace has a great name and, and reputation out there. But the reality is they've just got so much in their portfolio. They don't have the same amount of time and attention that they used to. Yeah. So, so um, how do you see this metaverse economy getting to $21.7 trillion, you know, in the relative now and near term over the next two or three years? What are the big changes that you see that begin to blast open a $21.7 trillion opportunity? Yeah, so what's happening is really the metaverse is going to start out with the different worlds and we're going to see it in gaming. We're going to see it in, you know, how people do training and education with digital twins and buildings, right? And, you know, there, there are a bunch of companies, right, that, that are starting this, you know. So when we start looking at, for example, you know, the worlds itself, that's, you know, any studio, Lionsgate, Disney, Sony, Paramount, Warner, they could all play in this space. Um, and, you know, we think that the key platforms are things like Autodesk, right? They've been building these models for years. Epic Games, right? Just powering the engines behind stuff. Microsoft is definitely doubling down on this. NVIDIA, of course, with the Omniverse. Roblox, of course, has already, like, people are building their stores in Roblox, you know? And then there's companies like Unity that have had these platforms and engines that everyone are using, like Ultimate Fighting Champ is on Unity in, in different angles. Unity is also doing 2D models for folks. And, and so that's important, right? And we'll see use cases in there like training. Like, I don't want to, you know, you're an oil rig person and you're on a platform. Like, you don't want to send one out to a platform that's not trained. You don't want them to fall off. It's kind of dangerous, right? You want to be able to do that training, you know, remotely. I'll give you haptics, you know, haptic gloves and an exoskeleton, jump in and, you know, get a feel for what's going on. Right. I think that's an important piece. Right. You're going to do surgeries. There'll be robotic surgeries. There'll be surgery viewing rooms and 3D environments. So you can actually see what a surgery operating theater looks like. And you can say, oh, wow, I didn't know I could do that. Right. So we're going to see that creep in. And it's really not only the consumer use cases, but a number of enterprise use cases that we think are important around employee experience and the future of work. Right. So this is like, you know, collaboration and meetings are going to change recruiting. Right. You're worried about bias and recruiting. My avatar is going to interview your avatar right? There's no bias in that. Um, you want to do onboarding? Okay, let's get everyone together, right? In, in, in creating a whole new set of experiences. Um, if you want to do, you know, training, as I was explaining, that's actually really good. You can actually do training in a way you couldn't do before. Um, we're going to see it in commerce and, you know, uh, customer experience. Advertising and search is going to change the way we market in terms of, you know, how we actually experience marketing on a product launch. Everyone can actually participate. You know, that's going to change commerce and digital malls are going to look different. Customer service and support, I mean, you know, you might even have the ability to do field service where like you're controlling a robot in a factory um, and, you know, there's a whole contact center folks that are moving around, you know, jumping around because they can remotely, you know, monitor and do stuff and actually in immerse both in the physical and the digital world. So there's a lot here. You know, it's interesting. We're talking about this. Uh, uh, yesterday, I uh, had a conversation with an enterprise software uh, firm that's doing real well. They're just pre-public. And they, part of what they sell is a suite of capabilities for frontline workers, sales, service, et cetera. And um, I said to him, well, how, in that group, they executives use their shit too. But in that group, which is the bigger user base, what percentage of them do you think are 35 or younger? And they said, 
probably 70-80%. And I said, that's right, which means they're native digitals. And so I said to them, you understand the biggest influence on the experience that native digitals want to have today is gaming and TikTok. And so if you have a quote-unquote enterprise app that helps frontline workers do their job and their native digitals, how much do they look like a gaming app and or TikTok? How much of that sort of vibe do you have in your UX? And um, they looked at me like I just clooned them in the head with a two by four. <laughs> well, I mean, people can't see, but it, it looks like this, right? I mean, we're going to be able to like, you know, manipulate stuff. I mean, that that's what we're trying to do is that, that whole immersive experience. So. And so, so let's go down to, I have a, I have a theory about what Microsoft did with Activision versus what Facebook did with their, uh, we're going to dedicate $10 billion to building the metaverse. But I'm curious, what's your take on Microsoft uh, acquiring Activision Blizzard? Yeah. So they really took, I mean, heart because basically they've lost hundreds of engineers and staff to Facebook and other folks in the metaverse, right? Their gaming properties, you know, weren't number one. Uh, and so buying Activision Blizzard actually did a few things for them. You know, at first it actually stabilized the gaming work and the gaming world for them, right? And they now have 10%, right? They have 10% of the gaming uh, market and that allows them to focus on the creatives, the tools, right? All the engines in the back end, And that gives them that new market presence so people are like oh microsoft is serious right we got diablo we got warcraft we got call of duty we got candy crush right and that goes on with the xbox game pass so you know that's a that's a great place right so now the developers are going to be interested in being there there's going to be the talent that's required you know to kind of do build build that piece so that makes sense the second piece is it puts pressure on the hololens hardware team like that thing is like funky it's old it's kludgy it's got cords the battery life is like yeah right so they've got to get back into that and they've been losing people so phil spencer suddenly has no lease of life that's microsoft's gaming chief and so he can start go out and say hey look you know we're going to compete with sony and oculus and fa you know face meta's oculus and valve and other folks and actually build some better hardware to go with this it might even be glass right you might have some new types of interfaces that are there and then of course the third thing was like they, they basically kind of stole Google Cloud's best gaming client. And so this was like a, hey, we're going to take your workloads, you know, and, and you know, basically it's it kind of like a fun, like, hey, we got this deal away from Google, right? That's short term. Long term, that means like they're in the middle of these conversations, right? They can do metaverse stuff. They can start talking about how we can put a brand in the metaverse. You know, they can use like Azure blockchain and then figure out what to do to build out NFTs and create DAOs in the marketplace. Uh, but but the short term is smart, right? Let's get the gaming infrastructure. Let's get the talent out here. Let's then tell the metaverse story. Let's get DAOs in place. Let's talk about where blockchain comes into place. Let's build our NFT models and let's start getting small businesses onto the metaverse and the brands that are there. And that gets them started, right? And all also, the thing that they're doing that people don't realize, every one of their acquisitions has reduced the average age of their user. That is the most significant thing. Like companies just age out, right? And, and that's a huge problem where like your average user is now 50 or 60 when all the new startups and all the kids are 10 to 20. And that's one of the things they've done with GitLab, GitHub, these, you know, Xbox acquisitions. Um, you know, it's amazing. That last point uh, is one that I think a lot of people missed. 
And if you sort of said, okay, strategically, what would you rather do? Be the first company to come out, declare the metaverse your your future, paint a vision, a point of view for that, and declare a $10 billion investment over a long-term period of time? Or would you rather do a 40-yard pass in gaming um, and get those early young users now and stair-step them over time into the metaverse, which you know, is what I think the long-term play here is there's short-term and mid-term massive value. But the long-term one is to your point, um, if you're the platform that eight, 10, 12, 15 year olds are spending a massive amount of their time on as this metaverse plays out, whichever directions it plays out, you'll be able to grow um, a suite of capabilities and applications for the early youngest age native digitals right now. And they set off a con. You're completely right. And they set off a content war, right? I mean, like Sony is now buying Bungie Studios because the, the maker of Halo, right? I mean, they all jumped in, right? Now everyone's like, oh, we need to buy this content. And that acquisition spree going first is so much cheaper. Yeah. Now, um, maybe let's um, uh, switch some topics here and maybe get a little bit controversial. <laughs> oh, um, no. We've never done that before. No, exactly. If my memory's right, and it was several whiskeys ago now, but um, uh, you were one of the first guys or among the first folks to come out and say, hmm, not so sure the narrative on where COVID-19 started in, in, in the wet market is is the right answer. It more than likely came, if I remember, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but this is what I remember, that it did come from the lab and uh, you have relationships and so forth and so on. And so... What's your thinking now about um, the origin of C19? So my sources are still alive. That's the good news. Um, the second thing is, you know, um, look, it looks very much like a accidental lab leak with a intentional cover up. I think that's the most polite way to put that. And as scientists and as, you know, you see these email leaks, we see like scientists saying, hey, that's not possible. You see who got paid off in the NIH and other areas. Um, you start to see a pattern that says, oh, people really tried to control the narrative. And the question is why, right? And why hasn't the world done a investigation of the origin? Because that would all save us some time when you're trying to build a vaccine or you're trying to prevent the next wave, um, at least to understand the origins and the etiology of that virus. Um, you know, it's kind of a first principle, right? You know, that's what you do. You try to find the root cause of the problem. And the root cause is a lab leak funded by a number of governments, and not just the U.S. government. It's the French government. It's like the Swiss government. There's other governments that are involved in this, right? And so it's an interesting piece to see what will happen at the end. Will the story ever be told? But the result is, you know, kind of interesting. Karma can suck, right? I mean, we've got the I don't know, Olympics going on and everyone's all masked up. Nobody cares. And everyone's all geared up for the Super Bowl coming up, you know, like or looking at the Super Bowl will probably be a bigger event than the Olympics when we look back. So it's going to be an interesting challenge. And so you don't think, you know, because the conspiracy theorists, of course, think that there was a nefarious move here. And uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci is, is 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 the puppet master working with Bill Gates to train Bigfoots to uh, install a five G misters that spray the virus so that they can all make money on the vaccine and implant chips in our heads. And so that crowd goes to that it was a purposeful quote leak that this the virus was a bioweapon 
and they launched it on us. And this was an evil plan by uh, 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 not Korea, geez, by China and 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 quote unquote the elites, whoever the fuck that is, to to depopulate the planet. That the the elites got together with China and said. Let's depopulate the planet and all, let's all profit off the disease and the vaccines. That's sort of, if I understand it right, uh, what some people say. Is there any credence in your mind to any of that? I wouldn't have anything to justify those statements. I don't have enough information on that. Um, I would say that there are certain elements that are true. Certain individuals have from time to time shown up at Davos and said, hey, Population control. What a great idea. I mean, I won't name those individuals. Um, other folks have, you know, always talked about the fact that there are too many people and, you know, we need an all in one vaccine to save things like all these statements are true put together, probably not in that order. Right. Um, but I would say that, you, you know, there's elements of that. There's elements of truth in each one of those statements. Is it a conspiracy? Probably not. If it was, it's a pretty darn good one. Uh, but the point being is like it to me still looks like an accidental lab leak with a massive cover up and a lot of bungling of public health policy. Uh, certain individuals who speak for the country on public health policy have bungled things more and created more mistrust in government than ever possible. Both presidents uh, before and after uh, have not done a good job in terms of, you know, communicating in a way to, to engender trust. The media has come after everything to create a political sized issue. I mean, you couldn't ask for the worst possible outcome of a bungled up cover up. And that's what we have. So there's a lot of blame to go around. Uh, but at the end of the day, like someone should still be asking the question, how did this happen and what's the origin? And it seems like I know there's been attempts to answer those questions, but uh, my um, layman's reading of, of what's gone on, essentially the Chinese government is only going to let people in so deep and see so much. And so we might not get the answer to that question or, or, or am I not paying attention to the right things? I don't know enough. I can all I can tell you is that the some of the individuals who have left uh, China to be able to share that information are in the U.S. Uh, some of the individuals in the U.S. who funded some of that research and knew more than they should are are are, are there and should be held accountable, right? I I don't know why we don't do anything about that. I mean, you'd think that's the first thing you would try to do is understand what's going on. I mean, if if the world was serious, they would pretty much tell China like, hey, look, we're not going to pay back any of your debts until you actually tell us. And you know what? And then the U.S. could step up and just say, hey, look, we'll defend everybody and fund everybody. Um, you know, we'll just print more money since we're doing that anyways. We'll keep printing more money and we'll fund these other countries. And, you know, you don't have to pick up your Chinese debts. You can just write them off and we'll take care of it for you. I mean, if you seriously wanted to play that game, you could. We just don't. All right. Thank you for that. Um, switching topics. Um, I have become increasingly concerned um, about uh, violence in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, I've asked a lot of people over the last handful of months, um, do you think we're less likely to have violence around the midterms in 2022 and the 2024 presidential election or less likely to have violence around them? And um, the answer I've gotten is actually pretty much 50, 50. I did a LinkedIn poll. Um, so it's, that. it's roughly 50, 50. So I let that sort of cook in your head. I'm, I'm, I am personally, uh, terrified that that's going to be the case. Um, and then secondarily, of course, uh, we've had this recent surprise of, of this, uh, trucker, let's call it unrest, 
um, that started in my uh, home country or uh, where I was born of Canada in a very un-Canadian way. It's not the kind of thing Canadians are normally known for. And they've occupied Ottawa and effectively uh, shut the state capital down. Um, and then there are the bridges and the stopping of trade and all of these things. And now, of course, this new category of um, uh, of opposition, to put it kindly, um, is in Australia, is in New Zealand, is in France. And of course, all reports indicate that it's uh, starting here in the United States and could be starting very, very soon. So what's your take on all of this trucker occupation, protest, et cetera? I think it's weird when you see Canadians get up and protest, and but they were kind of peaceful. I mean, if you looked at the early things, people were singing. They had like tribes out there. People were, you know, blocking the roads, but they were like helping each other out. I mean, if you look at the videos like that were early on Twitter, it was great. And then we had false flag operations pop up everywhere. Like, ooh, a mysterious Nazi flag showed up here. Or, hey, there's this you know, one person that's, you know, going out, setting up a fire. And then it turns out they were, they were Antifa members, right? So, I mean, I don't no, like, you know, we're living in an age of where a lot of media confusion is designed intentionally. Uh, but but what I noticed is that in general, because of that movement, you saw Alberta reduce their, you know, Alberta, Manitoba and Saskatchewan basically reduce their vaccine requirements and vaccine passports and all these other rules are being relaxed. Right. I mean, the West is saying, hey, no, to the East in Canada, which has traditionally been the case. Right. The West has always been the West. Right. Except for the coast. Right. And it's kind of like the U.S. in the same kind of way. But but to see the truckers out there and maybe I'm romanticizing this, but. I mean, people are like, oh, these are evil Nazi truckers. No, there's like, you know, there's a Punjabi truck driver out there like, you know, you know, saying, hey, we need to fix this. There's a Ukrainian truck driver out there. There's like all these other folks. I mean, the truckers are united. I've never seen anything like this. So so they're basically just saying, look, you know, we are in our truck every day. You want us to wear a mask, get a vaccine to go between borders. We don't talk to anybody. We don't even get out of our trucks like we've had enough after two years. I mean, if there's no other way to protest that to your government then I don't know what else you can do. These folks are just saying, hey, look, and and they're not going out burning up the streets. They're not looting stores. They're not like creating violence all over the place, robbing people. So I'm like, it's not bad. It's actually pretty peaceful, very polite and very Canadian. But I'm not Canadian, so I'm probably missing the point and probably haven't heard the other side. So so here's what I would argue with you on this. Um, l- let's say you agreed 100% with those positions. It's hard for me to agree with the tactics on the ground because everybody says, oh, it's not been violent. Okay, but it is terrorism insofar as, first of all, um, I I don't know if they're still doing it, but at, 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 at the beginning and mid of this thing, they were leaving their horns on for six, eight, 10, 12 hours a day. And so if you lived in Ottawa, you know, you essentially couldn't go outside unless you had major ear covering. And um, if you saw the videos of, of, of folks uh, on their balconies um, using their phones to capture the sound, um, they shut the city down. The major mall in the city is shut. Many small businesses are shut. The federal government's ability to do anything has been uh, deeply compromised at a time where Russia uh, maybe on the verge of invading um, and, and starting a major problem. And so my point is, while it's been peaceful, they haven't killed anybody, which is great. Um, 
it is a form of economic terrorism. And the people of Ottawa have said it's a form of psychological terrorism because they've shut streets down and they've got these horns going. And so um, that kind of that's point A. Point B, and this is the, 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 haha, the meta argument that I would have in Canada, in the United States and in other democracies, there are very clear ways in which we as citizens can protest our government. Uh, we can have um, we can have protests that are legal. So my wife was involved with uh, um, managing a major protest in San Francisco several years ago, and they got permits from the city, and they got police protection, and it happened in front of City Hall. There was a clearly defined pathway that everybody was going to walk. Th- hundred, not hundreds, tens of thousands of people showed up. And it was a peaceful demonstration. Nothing happened. No commerce was shut down. No jobs were lost. Um, no, no psychological uh, terror was created. It was a large, peaceful protest. And it was done, you know, according to what you might call commonly accepted practices. So that's kind of point A. So there's a way in which we can protest that is, uh, um, um, let's just call it more appropriate. And in addition, you know, we can all vote. We can run for political office. We can have civil discourse and arguments. We can use social media to, um, to share our beliefs and so forth and so on. And so my argument is, let's say I 100% agreed with all of their positions, shutting down the nation's capital and doing it in such a uh, disruptive way is not only illegal, I think it's immoral, and I also think it, it, it destroys their position. Because if I have a position on something and I act like a maniac about it, most people stop listening to my grievance. They look at the bad behavior. And, and now the, quote, freedom that they want, they're taking away from their fellow Canadians by hurting their jobs and, and, and so forth. How do you react to that? No, I say you're a very thoughtful individual, Chris. Um, I don't disagree with any of the statements you said. Um, and I also want to pull on the other statement you said about violence being 50-50. I think this is a result of um, academic elites allowing the protests of the summer uh, in 2020 to continue with no consequences, no arrests, and regular folks are fed up. And, and they are like, well, if those folks can go out and do this kind of stuff and go loot and kill people and damage property and no consequences are occurring, then we'll, we'll be nicer. We'll do it in a way that we won't destroy anything. We're going to be as respectful as we can. And, and the horns are our freedom of speech. Let's be honest, 150 decibels is pretty loud. I mean, you couldn't be able to sleep at night. So I agree with you on that. But I just think people are just reacting because the norms got changed and the rules um, for me and the rules for thee are different. And, and you can't do that. Uh, and so your point of equal application of justice is not being performed. And you see that all the time with certain types of folks getting discriminated and canceled for what they say and other folks being able to get away with it for much longer. And the question is like, why don't we have just equal application of justice and we wouldn't have this problem? Not saying if you did that, you get to do this and a tit for tat that never ends well anywhere. Right. And, and that's your point. I mean, there's a massive escalation going on. But the truckers, for the most part, are just you know, they're just protesting because there's nothing else they can do, right? I mean, these are the folks that were on the front lines. They were working. They were, you know, moving goods around while everybody else was like hiding out in their own homes. These guys were out there every day. And so for them to say, hey, guys, enough is enough. No one else was going to do it. The media wasn't there. And, you know, I mean, look, I'm a public health major. Lockdowns have never worked in the history 
right? I mean, you, they just did the study from Johns Hopkins, my alma mater, that said lockdowns had an effect of 0.2%. That's 0.002 in terms of improving, you know, COVID transmissions and deaths. So, I mean, we've got a whole bunch of policies in place where you've got half a country in, in the U.S. case, and you've got a third of the country in Canada's case that's saying, guys, are you listening to the minority views? And, and I think that's what it is, right? And, and so for me, who is very upset at certain types of protests and riots, I look at this like, hey, go, go, folks, go, because people, they can't get their voices across and you're making something out of it. Now, if this goes on for four weeks and supply chains are shut down and people are losing their jobs and auto workers can't get things across, medical supplies can't Which get to Canada, started, right? Yeah. And food can't started. get across. Now we got a problem. So if you were the government of Canada, like the only sane thing to do is to go meet with these folks and listen to them, at least do that. You know, I mean, that that would be my point of view. But hey, I don't know the Canadian politics. So what, what, what can I say? Yeah. And I'm, I'm nowhere near as up on Canadian politics as I used to be. The, the big pushback I would have to everything you said is, you know, having having grown up in that environment, many countries who have a parliamentary system like Canada's um, experienced a lot of strikes. You know, when I was a kid growing up in Montreal, everybody was on strike all the fucking time, right? The construction workers were on strike. The teachers were on strike. Everybody was on strike because that was a way to get their voices heard. Um, my favorite story about strikes years ago, uh, Paris was trying to lobby the uh, Olympic Committee to have the Olympics in Paris. Yep. And the number one concern of the Olympic Committee was given the uh, French slash Parisians um, uh, uh, use of strike. strikes, if I could put it mildly, <laughs> they yep. were afraid that there would be all this striking going on and it would F up the Olympics. Well, guess what happened? <laughs> There was a strike when the Olympic Committee came to Paris, and so that ruined the whole thing. Oops. Anyways, this is the thing I don't understand. If you wanted to make this statement, the simple thing to do that wouldn't have hurt the economy, that wouldn't have trapped people in their own homes, that wouldn't have fucked over small business, that wouldn't have fucked over um, the produce business, because now trucks with fresh produce are dying, and, uh, and on and on and on, would have been to say, okay, let's go on strike. But they didn't do that. They did something much more, um, you know, look, you may disagree with me, but I think it's a form of terrorism. And my fear here in the United States is that we are going to see this here. And the difference between truckers in Canada and truckers in the United States is um, in most of our country, you can buy a gun pretty easily. And in Canada, you can't. And so... Uh, do you share my concern that if this new category of terrorism uh, takes flight here in the United States, um, that it could be uh, less bounce houses uh, and more shotguns? <laughs> I would say that the root cause of the problem is that we do not apply justice equally. And if if we were going to apply justice equally, um, you would say, hey, don't don't protests, go file for a permit. You know, you're going to do a march just like people go to DC all the time. They file for a permit, they do a march and, you know, arrest all the terrorists um, who were, you know, rioting in the streets for all the BLM riots. I mean, that would be only fair. And people would say, okay, now you're applying equal justice. We understand that our voices will be heard and we've seen your point and we've heard it, right? I, that's part of a democracy to do that. When you don't do that and take sides, we're in trouble. And so I agree with you there. 
So I don't. So let's maybe talk about that. You know, I talked to both Alec Ross and Dr. Cedric Alexander on recent episodes around this topic. I was shocked in the summer of 2020 what our uh, governments allowed Antifa and left uh, extremists to do in Seattle and uh, Portland and many other cities where they just identical to Ottawa insofar as a group with a grievance took over part of a city. And then in the case of uh, what happened in the summer of 2020, there were rapes, there were murders, there were businesses that were meaningfully damaged. It wasn't uh, bounce houses. Um, and many of these cities, uh, regions, uh, and states did nothing. And then, then you go to look at January 6th and where it was right-wing extremists who attacked the Capitol. And again, um, it was known for days that this was going to happen. You didn't have to be an intelligence expert. All you had to do is have a browser or a television. You knew they were coming and you knew what they were going to do. They told you what they were going to do. And, and it was radically understaffed. The National Guard wasn't available, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then they broke in and they killed cops and they did all the things that we all know that they did. And, and I look at the justice, quote unquote, that's been applied to some of these criminals who committed these horrible acts on January 6th. And, you know, a lot of it, in my opinion, is a slap on the wrist. And so this leads me to a big question. If you think about those things, the summer of 2020 on the left, January 6th on the right, and then you think about 9-11, the question I have for you is, why, Ray, do we view domestic terrorism differently than we view international terrorism? Because if, if, if the people who did those things in 2020 and on January 6th were from a foreign country, our, our, I posit our response would have been radically different. So the way to look at that is you think that they're your fellow citizens, right? And you, you're like, oh my God, what's going on here, right? And, and, and so you look at that, you know, depending on what political party you're like, hey, why, why are these people so crazy? Are these QAnon people? Are they, you know, uh, Antifa folks, right? I mean, and you look at it from that angle. Uh, that, that's one thing. But, but I do want to correct something. The, the deaths in the Capitol Hill riots, I mean, uh, are, are, are not really that. Two people had a heart attack. Uh, one person had an accidental overdose. Um, there was one shooting death for, you know, Ashley Babbitt, right? Um, you know, other than that, I mean, someone had a stroke. So to say like, and four suicides occurred, right? You know, after that. So to say that people died in that, right? And cops were killed. I, I think that's incorrect, right? You go back and look at the fact check. There's a political check on that. You, you'll, you'll see that. Um, the diff and, and if you look at the Come capital, on, Ray. So if you look at the I capital mean, riots, I mean, you, you'll see two views, right? You mean you'll to tell me when they're beating the shit out of cops with uh, with fire extinguishers and um, some cops kill themselves because of the psychological damage and there were cops that died as a result of actions that took place that day? I mean, this was not a this was the furthest thing from a peaceful protest. I'm looking at the factcheck.org, which is pretty, you know, slightly left to center when they look at fact checks. That's what it says there. Um, so I'm, I'm just pulling from there, right? And I'm, I'm just saying the videos we saw on one station versus the videos we saw on the other are very different, right? Um, any type of, uh, you know, in, in any type of insurrection like that is, should not be condoned. Um, let's start there. But then I'm going down and I'm looking at the facts here. It just looks strange. Like I've seen videos that show cops saying, hey, come on in. I see the 
protesters and incessant riots being led in in single file going into the Capitol. And I've seen folks that only show, you know, Vikings running around, you know, looting and plummaging. Right. I mean, that's the range of videos and it depends on what media you're watching. I watch all the media and you look there and you have to make a decision. You say, oh, that versus people burning down buildings, you know, taking police stations hostage, you know, taking up encampments, you know, looting, rioting, you know, breaking windows, you know, coming, stealing stuff. I mean, that's night and day. Yes, it is the Capitol um, are both right. I'm not going to create false equivalencies, but, you know, neither was correct. But your point on justice is really the point. Why were folks not arrested and treated the same way? I mean, you got someone that basically committed a misdemeanor in most things being locked up for the next 10 years with no rights. And you've got folks out there still looting and still looting again and creating a crime scene in these major cities. That's a problem. So equal application of justice is what's missing here. Yes. And and a radical if it's our insane people doing insane, horrible shit, it's a lot more OK than if it's, quote, their insane people doing horrible shit. <laughs> no, nothing's OK. None of this, is, this okay. is what I understand. They're if just insane. We should be pick, stopping pick, that. Pick, pick your country. Let's just say it was Canadians. Let's, you know, no, let's it's, say it's a group of right Canadians went case. to Seattle and did what happened in, in the summer of 2020 or a group of Canadians attacked the cat. You know, they, that we'd be at war with Canada, just like we went, went to war after 9-11. No, but we are at war with ourselves right now. We are at okay. war with ourselves right now. It's scary. And so so let's talk about that. And in, and and also let's talk about the role of tech companies around this because there's a huge debate right now and the rogan thing and all that around are they platforms that, that anybody can do squares. anything they want on or are they publishers with a responsibility to their content wait platforms are public squares or publishers there's three so okay perfect so so which are they does does facebook have any culpability for letting antifa or letting january 6th or or letting truckers or or or, or boogaloo boys or all these maniacs uh, organize and so forth, uh, or do they say, "Hey, listen, we're a platform. We're not applying any kind of uh, point of view to anything, and people can do whatever they want." I think the public has applied pressure on both ends on platforms who didn't take action further for any for like really grievances. And each side of you know, it could be a four sided political party view of what's going on, right? has felt grieved and no justice was taken. And therefore everyone has tried to cancel one side or the other when that occurs um, as, as a form of protest for platforms not doing their job or what people feel their job should be. If you're a true libertarian, you're like, well, it's a platform, it's the people on the platform. And unless something massively egregious occurred, like we shouldn't do anything. Uh, but then there's the extreme where you are the public square and multiple sides and points of view aren't being taken. So there are GoFundMe pages to allow protesters and rioters bail money, but there's no GoFundMe allowed for the truckers in Canada to support their cause. You know, that's not an equal application of a policy. That's very just selective of what you're trying to do, right? And then what was the third option here? We got platforms, public square, and publishers who publishers. have a responsibility for what Publishers should be responsible for the content, but every publisher has a different set of content standards. If you are an adult magazine versus your time or business week, I mean, everyone has a set of normalized standards. The problem is we don't have normalized standards either. 
right? So we're living in this very gray world of what are these folks doing and what are their roles? Um, what I'm scared about is the fact that every group has only their own view and we just enter even worse echo chambers. We can't normally have this kind of conversation that you and I have about debating an issue. Most people get into a fight by, you know, the, the third second, <laughs> you know, two seconds is enough, right? Of patience. And so, so that, that's what makes it hard. We're not having these discussions. We should be having these discussions without people getting all excited, emotional and saying, I'm going to crush you and I'm going to cancel you and not kind of buy your pillows or, I mean, I don't know, whatever <laughs> you get the idea. So, yeah, I do. And I actually, and I'll, bounce this off of you i think that um if if not the number one it's certainly very high up problem here in the u.s clearly in canada and clearly in uh, uh, um, other major parts of the world is we've lost the ability to have authentic dialogue and making it meaningfully worse there's only one platform for unedited authentic dialogue and that's podcasting Everything we see on the news, the vast majority of radio shows that have turned into podcasts, a lot of podcasts themselves are just radio shows on the internet. And if you pay any attention, you can see where the cuts are and they go for the sensational. And um, we're now at a place, and let me bounce this off you, where, my, here's my fear. Social media, media, and the politicians have moved to a model that says... The more hate and anger we can monetize, the better. This is the easiest way to make money fast. Mm -hmm. It's the easiest way to get uh, campaign contributions, mm -hmm. right? And you see more and more breaking of norms and extreme positions on either side, mm -hmm. whether it's Maxine Waters or, or what's-her-face, um, Taylor Green or whatever it is, right? Um, and so, and even in social media, Forget politics for a second. It's a it's an environment that in general rewards ever increasing outrageous and crazy behavior. I mean, I'm sure you saw the whole Scott Galloway thing that blew up a little while ago where he had the video of himself half naked yep. rapping about his sex life or whatever that. And it's like, I don't know. I don't know the guy who was on my podcast once, but you know, he seems like he was probably a pretty smart, savvy guy. And it seems to me just my assessment that a guy like that gets rewarded for being more and more outrageous. So he does more and more outrageous shit that. And so my point is not only will the government and the media not help drive authentic dialogue and dampen shit down, they're actually monetizing it and increasing it. And the only antidote to it are dialogue podcasts from a media perspective. And then what community social and business leaders do in their environments to try and dampen it down because the media, social media, and the government actually is monetizing the anger and the hate. What's your reaction to all of that, Ray? There's a lot to unpack here. Let's start by the first point, right? Um, this podcast, the one that we just had, like we could be canceled, <laughs> right? I mean, people are like, oh my God, that was so offensive. It doesn't matter what it was. People just get offended by everything. And so they complain, they group up and they say, oh, okay, that was offensive. You need to do something about that, right? So, so, so everyone's doing that. It doesn't mean it's right. Uh, the amplification of 
um, extremes is definitely happening. And, and you're right. We see that everywhere. Um, I mean, no one gets, no one ever gets excited about being a moderate. Let's go be a moderate. Let's go protest being a moderate. I mean, it just doesn't work. <laughs> it's kind of silly almost. Right. And so, so we hit the extremes even further and, and we have no idea where the center is anymore. Um, and what we're doing is we're really hipping, hitting on the, you know, um, the, the triggers we're getting on your dopamine. We're getting people to be more emotional, less logical, not having the arguments. Uh, people are jumping in on people's sentences before they can even finish something. People aren't being heard. They're just talking. And I mean, it, it creates a lot of challenges. So, so we're, we are definitely saying that. And I do agree with you. I think that's, you know, that's part of the problem is we, we can't have real conversations and everything's being, there's very few things that are unfettered. I mean, there are very few things that are unfettered. Everything is being screened and people are trying to fit a narrative around that. Um, I think we are probably very confusing to people because we have positions on multiple sides of different parties. And sometimes we agree. Uh, we mostly agree. Sometimes we disagree. And it's kind of fun because we learn something from each other and we're open to that. Uh, I don't think most of the population wants to do that or has the energy to do that or decides that they want to do that. And, and so that comes back to your point, like, what do we do about that? And it's almost as if we need leaders um, that are there that are able to withstand the political attacks and take a stand for um, having the dialogue, having freedom of speech, having the moderation, having a real concerted uh, you know, understanding of what people's different views are and, and trying to, you know, bring those voices out there that might not necessarily always been heard and not trying to fit like an ideological narrative. Um, I mean, that's, that's probably the worst thing we can do. So, but, but I think we're repeating the same mistakes we were made in the seventies, right? I mean, th these are 50 year cycles and we just walked into the last one. I mean, the last time we were in the seventies, what we're, we're trying to get to the moon and land something there and I don't know, get into space. And our inflation was what, like 20, 24%, right? Interest rates were like 18%. You know, people were, gas prices were like super high and people were out of jobs. And I don't know. I hope we don't walk into that again. I hope we learn something from that. Well, and as a result, um, Jimmy Carter was a one-term president, and um, he was not popular when he left office at all, which is part of why he lost, of course. Very nice guy. And though. interestingly enough, uh, at least the last ones I've seen, uh, Biden's approval ratings are as low as anybody's been in uh, decades, if I'm understanding what I'm reading. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Carter was a nice guy, very good post-president, right? Um, you know, but you know, at the time, maybe the most legendary post-president ever. I mean, if you don't love Jimmy Carter today and haven't loved him for the last little while, even if you disagree with his politics, uh, you know, he's more liberal than I am, that's for sure. But you gotta love him. I mean, he's America's grandpa, and he's done clearly tried to do more great in good. the world. It's very hard to argue that he hasn't tried to do that and has done much great work. Yeah, no, I agree with you. He, he's done so much good in the world and, and, and really, he was a good man in a bad town. I mean, that's the one way to look at it. Yeah, and, I'm, and you know, it's interesting. I, I share this with some of my Democrat friends and they get really angry at me. But, you know, if you look at um, the last president prior to Trump and now Biden, who was like insanely controversial, uh, of course, it was uh, George W. Bush. And even if you didn't like him, and there were a lot of people who said he was the worst president ever and all these sorts of things. And obviously the Iraq war was in Afghanistan. I mean, there's a lot of things you can point to. However, as Alec Ross and I talked about uh, recently, it's really hard to argue that he was a bad man purposely trying to do bad things, 
trying to divide our country or the world. As Alec Ross, who's a Democrat, pointed out, um, you know, W was very clear during the response to 9-11 that this had nothing to do with Islam or religion. You know, he he seemed to be trying, maybe not enough, criticize whatever you want, but it's hard to say he hated Muslims or was a racist or these things. We never heard those things at any kind of a scale with uh, W. And so, um, you know, that was back in a time when when we didn't sort of attack people in that way. And it would have been hard to. And yet here we sit today. What do you think changed so much, Ray? I mean, look, right now I've been I've been very calm and not trying to attack anyone because I don't think it helps. Right. We just all been, you know, we all feel like we can go and yell at anybody for any reason. And, and it's OK. And, you know, and then people get rewarded for it. Right. Um, and, and I think that's that's what's changed. Like the civility isn't there. Right. I mean, we just don't have that civility, but the civility has never been there with uh, media versus, you know, certain parties and different viewpoints. And, you know, it's just gotten worse. Right. Reporters aren't doing their job. They're not asking the tough questions. They only ask the tough questions when one party is in power and when another party is in power. They're just like, oh, that's wonderful. Hey, you know, what did you have for dinner today? Instead of asking, hey, what's up with your policy here? Right. And, and I think the public sees that and then it just keeps building on itself. I mean, we, we need people to come back and be you know, try to arbitrate. I mean, let's take uh, Chris Wallace on Fox News, for example. He was crushed for not being, you know, partisan enough on the Fox News side for being, you know, conservative enough. And he was just trying to toe the line, right? And and actually be a, a real reporter and be objective about that. Shepard Smith, a great example, you know, over at CNBC now, right? He just wants to tell the news. He wants to tell both sides and, you know, you get pulled, like there's no room for the middle, right? We're not making room for the middle. And, and I think that's dangerous. And that's why I'm a radical independent. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm I'm with you. I also want to touch touch back on you and I disagreeing. Here's something that seems to be lost in the narrative around dialogue, which is for me to love you, for me to respect you, for me to enjoy being with you, does not require you and I to agree on everything. And, and and this is the thing I don't understand as somebody who deeply loves people who are very far right and very far left and all in between, you know, with my friends who have differing views, some of which I think are fucking batshit. Like, I can't even believe they think it on either side, by the way, <laughs> you know, the specifics don't matter, but. I want to talk to them about it because I want to understand. Remember the Stephen Covey? Yeah. The habits. Right. One of them is seek first to understand, Mm -hmm. right? As opposed to be understood. And so I want to understand you and see why you think what you think. You and I don't agree on everything about the truckers, clearly. Okay. And so this is the other part of it, which is, um, why is it we've gotten to a place where you can't love people that you disagree with? That's kind of point A. Point B, um, as a man of a certain age myself, Um, I've come to realize that, you know what, there are things I believed when I was 20 and 30 and 40 that I don't believe anymore. I've evolved. It's called, and and now we call it flip-flopping. Well, you know what it's really called? It's called fucking learning, right? (laughs) And so when you and I have a debate about something and I feel my blood getting up a little bit and I really want to, you know, escalate, there's a part of me that try, at least I try to develop a little bit of humility around, hey, you know what? Uh, you've changed your opinion or you've moved your opinion over time. Um, 
uh, it might not be right, quote unquote, right? Seek first to to understand. Uh, and then the third piece is from a political perspective on the same, in the same dialogue dimension, you take a very left-leaning person, you say to them, do you want in the United States at every level of government in every part of the country it to be 100% Democrat? And then you take a very right-leaning person and you ask the same question around the GOP. I haven't heard really anybody say, yes, I want to live in a 100% GOP or a 100% Dem world. I think that would be an absolute disaster and it would be fucking terrifying. I think the wise, thoughtful civil discourse matters a lot. It do, I think that's the tenant that makes us able to strive for a more perfect union. And that seems to be completely fucking lost. The appreciation for the difference as opposed to the, oh, well, fuck you. You're trying to destroy America. Yeah. No, I mean, majority rule, minority rights, uh, voices. Uh, I mean, that's really what this country was built on. It's built on federalism. Every state can do something a little bit different. And some states are very different, right? And, you know, they have to acquire for their needs. Local control, um, those are very important fu- fu- you know, functions that are there. And, you know, having proper civil disobedience is, is should be, it, it's a right, you know? So I, it's, it's, but it starts with equal application of the law, equal justice under the law. It starts with giving people equal opportunities. It starts with, you know, making sure that, you know, people have an equal opportunity to succeed, whether you want to work for it or not. Yeah, that's a different story, but, but giving people those opportunities is important. When we tell people that things are fair, that they're biased, they're against them. And we keep teaching that to them and we take away some of that spirit. Some of it's true, right? You, you do have to address it, but others of it is, is really a mindset. I mean, you go to most immigrants and they come to the U S you know, and they're just like, what's wrong with you people? I'm like, what do you mean? It's like, you people are lazy. I mean, it's so much better over here. This is like 10 X better, right? I'm, I'm willing to work harder here because I, I get what I make and you know, I, my, my, my efforts are rewarded. It doesn't matter what immigrant you talk to. They see that. And then four generations later, they're like, oh my God, what's wrong with my grandkids? Like, you know, they, they're totally entitled, right? It's just human nature. It has nothing to do with the things that we normally look at, like race or religion or, you know, gender. I mean, it just comes down to like the normal human condition. And it's hard to have that conversation with people. Thank you for that. That was great, Ray. Now, going forward into 2022 from a technology perspective, if I'm a CEO, C-level executive, what are the things I should be thinking about opportunities and threats in the tech world? So we normally look at the tech trends. Everybody knows them today. We added quantum AI. We always look at, you know, what's happening, you know, beyond that into the web 3.0, the metaverse, right? That is one aspect of future forecasting that we look at um, at Constellation. Uh, you know, the bigger forces that we look at tend to fall within the non-tech ones. We have a methodology called Pestle, and Pestle is politics, economics, society, environment, tech, you know, and legislation. We look at that all in one big uh, batch. It's the non-tech Uber trends for the next decade that concern us, and we spend a lot of time thinking about those implications. Number one, U.S. versus China, right? I mean, whether it's supply chain, whether it's, you know, dominance for world power, whether it's chips, I mean, you know, whether it's, you know, IP protections and, you know, it's just everywhere and it's only going to get worse. I think we're about to enter almost a cold war with China as they close up and as tensions rise and, you know, Belt and Road initiatives come into play. Right. 
That's number one. Number two is really the war against the dollar, right? And the dollar, I mean, we've printed so much money in the US that, you know, it's causing other folks to have strife. Like we've basically created most of the recessions around the world because of how money was managed in the US. And that means, you know, people are creating cryptocurrencies to challenge the dollar. Other folks are trying to, you know, create their own currencies to, you know, take out the dollar and trade in different things. And that has huge. By the way, did you see the truckers are creating their own crypto because of what GoFundMe did? Yeah. 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 Sorry. Keep, keep going. No, you're right. You know, uh, there are other implications. The space race to us is kind of fun, right? We've got China versus the U.S. versus the United Arab Emirates versus like, you know, Europe, like everyone's trying and launching rockets up there. And then we got private folks like Elon versus Bezos versus, you know, uh, Branson, right? Trying to get to the tourism. But, but there's huge implications. Like we can grow new types of molecules. We can grow tissues and skins and organs in space. We're going to mine different things we have automated you know spaceships i mean it's so cool people are taking off on rockets on an ipad boom right i mean anybody can fly now right and and it's just opening up a whole new area of hope right and that's that's kind of exciting where people are saying okay i'm gonna go do that material sciences bio right biochemistry like all these things get really uh exciting and then of course we have bio wars and the abuse of CRISPR. And that gets scary. Gene editing technology is going to come into play and, and humans just can't control themselves, right? Regardless of what ethics are there. It's like, hey, wouldn't it be really cool if we got a second, like, you know, nose over here, right? Or, you know, maybe I want to augment something. I'm not going to tell you what, right? I mean, it's all these things are going to pop up. I'd like, like to grow a second liver. I think that might be wise. <laughs> second liver could be useful. We'll be at Uncle Dave's. Although market. given my Scottish heritage, I sort of have one anyway. But <laughs> Wait, it's genetic advantage, right? And so you're going to see <laughs> this, right? And we're going to wonder, hey, what happened, right? I mean, you know, back to your conspiracy theories, but this is true, right? There are 80-year-old generals in China that are missing and people have seen them come back and they look like they're 60. Well, how did they do that? Right. We're going to be wondering and asking that question. And in two years, I'll be on your podcast talking about that. Right. And then there's centralized versus decentralized. Like we get into that. Oh, my God, everything is centralized. We're going to decentralize, blow up the world in Web3. Right. And then, oh, no, no, some things have to be centralized because we need some order. Right. And, you know, so we go through that all the time. And this one's big. And then, of course, right, you know, we're, we're talking about we talked about this earlier, free speech in an era of tech censorship and authoritarianism. What does that mean? You know, uh, and, and that's impacting tech giants and what we see. And, you know, it's also antitrust. What happens? You know, do we give people that much power? Why do we give companies that much power? Right. How do we take them out? Right. I mean, you see Starbucks is getting unionized. It's kind of interesting. Right. And then, you know, we've got this whole notion around, you know, the impending cyber war. It's not impending. We're here. We're in it, right? Countries are being attacked all the time. People are being hacked. We just did a disrupt TV episode on healthcare security, and you wouldn't be you'd be surprised as to what's going on. I mean, you know, every device is being hacked. Every utility is being hacked, right? We're like, you know, I mean, if you're really going to take over a country, you'd hack a country first, then send out your troops and drop in some bio war, and it'd be kind of scary, right? So, right. I mean, how many hospitals already have been shaken down in ransomware uh, incidents? Yeah, I mean, several, right? Actually, you know what? I, I just want to get that PC Matic guy to show up. <laughs> you ever see those ads? <laughs> we gotta interview the PC Matic guy. I mean, is it Bob Chen or something? Maybe he's got. Maybe he's got the answer. Maybe he's got the so answer. Let me bounce. So. Let me bounce this off you, given everything you just talked about. Um, I think one of the most under-discussed, under-reported things in business and tech right now is uh, as a result of the 
sort of ever increasing innovation, new category creation that is happening. We've had more innovation in the last five years, arguably than we had in 50. Um, the interest, and then you throw COVID on top of that. Here's the interesting aha. A lot of people say, particularly marketing idiots, oh, people don't like change. People don't like change. The reality is, I think what we're seeing is people love change if they understand it. And my theory here is that right now is the greatest time in history for receptivity to different. And if you're an entrepreneur, you're an innovator, you're a company leader, and you aspire to do something more on the exponential side, a little bit less on the incremental side, that now's a fucking, now, now is the time to go for it because, you know, We've been, we've seen all of these new changes in the vaccine, Zoom school, all of this stuff, right? Um, the receptivity to different has never been higher. And that means people who are in a position to help move the world, uh, whether it's as a technologist, an entrepreneur, or in any other domain you want to talk about forward in a exponential way, there's a, there's an openness to that that exists today that didn't exist uh, two years ago. I'm curious as to your reaction, Ray. I don't know. Someone famous once said, follow your different. And, uh, you know, <laughs> no, we are in the middle of what we call the great refactoring. It's not a new normal. It's not a great reset. It's not a resignation. I mean, people are open to different. They're open to change. Uh, what they're looking at is a shift in their work-life balance. Companies are re-looking at their mission and purpose. You know, people are thinking about, you know, where does environmental, social goals and governance come into play, right? Um, and so it's, this is going to, we're going to look back, right? In 2030, coming back, we're going to look back and say, that was an amazing time. Like I could build this thing. I could create this thing. I could start something brand new. Um, people, you know, definitely the tools and the technology and the ideas and the willingness to go create something are here. And so that's why I'm excited, right? Folks are like, oh my God, the pandemic's been depression, depressing and people are getting depression over it. But I'm like, this is an amazing time to go build something, think about something and get something launched because this is going to be an exciting decade. Uh, at least I feel that way. And, you know, maybe, maybe I'm too much of an optimist. No, I feel the same way. You know, Alec Ross said it a couple episodes ago. He said most people, per the discussion we had on all the horrible shit, are not burning and flipping cars and killing people and, uh, you know, doing all these horrible things. Most people in America and other uh, uh, parts of the world, of course, are doing good things in their lives. And you and I have an interesting seat here in Silicon Valley in the tech industry. I mean, I'm sure this is true for you. You'll tell me. But, you know, my in inbox is more interesting and exciting today than it ever has been in my life, whether it's with guests wanting to be on the podcast or writing cool books or doing cool things or my friends in the entrepreneurial world and the venture capital world, the technologists that I know, the researchers that I know, even the artists that I know. I mean, there's a lot of shysters in the NFT business, but uh, over the long term, digital art and, and digital creations and the creator economy, these are all very exciting things that have the uh, propensity or the opportunity to be much more uh, positive than negative. And so, uh, you know, when I go to a dark place about, oh, my God, you know, the whole world's going to blow up and we're going to have World War Three and Russia and China and domestic terrorists and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then I go to this other place that says, yeah, but 
my inbox is fucking unbelievable right now. <laughs> oh my god, the people I've met throughout this, uh, whether it's uh, virtually or uh, you know, or, or in person, I mean, it's awesome. Yeah, what's that? What are you pointing to right there? I was just scratching my nose. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> I thought moved, you had something. my arm. Sometimes I dance around in my chair for no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but hey, you know, you're getting me excited, Ray. <laughs> no, but it, it is. I'm I'm so excited about what's ahead of us. Uh, it is truly something that we should be looking forward to. People are regrouping. Uh, they're you know they they're being able to actually refocus on the things that they really want to do. And when people are passionate, it's amazing. Amazing things can happen. And here's the other thing: there's never been so much money on the sidelines. Like you want to raise money for something? Holy crap! It's just money lying everywhere. Okay, it's not that bad, but you get the idea. There's so much capital lying on the sidelines, waiting for a great idea. It's the execution and operational piece that's not there. And and now people are focused to go build those things. The other thing in that regard, absolutely, I see the same thing. And the other thing in that regard, uh, and some people are getting sick of me talking about this, but, but several months back now, the Wall Street Journal wrote a fascinating story on that right now we're at the beginning of the greatest wealth transfer in the history of America because the boomers and the Gen Xers feel differently about uh, inheritance than their parents and grandparents. And so they're gifting money to their children earlier and earlier. And the thing that I find, and they have lots to gift, right? And the thing that I find interesting about that, other than that it's a huge wealth transfer, which is interesting in of itself, but these native digitals, there's a lot of legendary young people right now. There's a lot of 16-year-olds starting businesses. There, there's a lot of great thinking coming from young people. Their ability to do things with technology because their primary experience is a technology experience is incredible. I look at all of the young people in my life and I find, you know, there's exceptions here and there. It was fun to shit on the millennials for a little while, but the reality is um, the younger people that we have uh, seem to me on balance to be really fucking cool. And ve very many of them are innovative and they have an ability to create that was not possible in prior generations. And so, and now they're getting a bunch of money from their parents and their grandparents. And so, I see the confluence of that as being uh, huge. And I don't see, you know, if we go back to all the nasty shit, most of the nasty shit, if I'm reading this right and I try to pay attention, is being uh, caused by people who are 40, 50, 60, 70, and 80. There are not a lot of 25-year-olds, um, you know, in Antifa who are trying to burn down cities or 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 at the Capitol or, or pick your thing, right? And so my point is, these younger folks are very innovative, very creative, native digitals. They're getting a bunch of money and they seem to have a more, if you will, creation slash abundance mindset than, you know, destruction and fight over scarce uh, resources mindset. What's your take on that? That's a great point. I mean, this culture of abundance is going to happen. I mean, there's something like 70 trillion that's supposed to be given out over the next I don't know, 30, 40 years, right? I mean, that's a pretty long time. I mean, it's about 30 years where 70 trillion is going to be passed on and people aren't waiting till they die to pass on that money to their heirs. I mean, they want to see what they do with it. So, I mean, we we have huge opportunities to go do this and, and actually, you know, I mean, people want to change the world or try something different. It, it's up to them to be able to go do that. Um, nothing's stopping them. Uh, and, and I think the challenge really right now is, you know, what what can people do that really aligns with their values? 
Uh, and, and you really have to understand yourself first. I think a lot of people don't have a full grasp of, you know, what they stand for, what they're willing to learn, what they're willing to tolerate, what they're willing to discover, what they won't change their mind on. And, and I think people had the time to do that during the pandemic. I mean, and, and that's the, probably one pause moment that probably doesn't happen for another hundred years. Right. And so here's a chance to go back and say, hey, what would the next hundred years look like? Right. What kind of world and society do we want to build for the next hundred years? Uh, and then people are going to go out and go do that. I think most people have had that kind of conversation with themselves saying, hey, what, what's next? What do we do? Right. And, you know, people have done that by saying, I'm going to move to, uh, you know, more rural land, have more space. I want a more small town feel. Older people are like, hey, I want to live in cities because, I, you know, it's too much work to, to actually maintain like a big house. And so we'll downsize and go over here. Other folks saying, hey, look, you know, I want I want to teach the next generation a skill set. Um, and, you know, if people want to we'll learn, we'll, we'll, we'll teach that so many learning platforms that are out there where people can share those ideas. Uh, and then other folks are just passing on, you know, not just money, but they're passing on wisdom. And, and I think, you know, we didn't always have that. So, so it's, it's exciting. I, I'm, I'm an optimist here. In general, I am too. Uh, and, and that's what helps me through some, <laughs> when some horrible shit's going on. The great refactoring. Uh, Ray. The world's greatest number one tech analyst. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap today? <laughs> I think we've hit almost everything. I'm not sure what we haven't hit right now. <laughs> I'm trying to figure like what others think. Maybe the Olympics, but yeah, we'll pass on that. <laughs> the, bo- the burner phone Olympics. I mean, I don't know. burner phone games. I think is what they're calling it now. So. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, you know, I love you. I thank you so much. I can't wait till you come back on the podcast. I can't wait till our next lunch and or dinner. And uh, I think the world's a, a, a much different, exponentially different place because you are in it. <laughs> Same here, man. I really appreciate the dialogue and, and more importantly, your friendship and, and the ability to just share ideas like unfettered, right? Open, right? Uh, you know, and, and just get at it. It's fun. So thank you so much for that opportunity and for doing this for everybody in your podcast. Well, you're welcome. It's a a huge gift in my life and you're a huge gift in my life. And uh, thank you, brother. Thank you. Well, there he is, the incomparable and uncomparable Ray Wong himself. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with people you love and respect. Uh, If you're listening on a smartphone app, which is what I'm guessing you're doing, there's a share button right there and you can send it to your friends and loved ones right now. And don't forget, we always appreciate your social media thoughts and shares. All right. We would like to thank you. Thanks again for hanging out. Um, We really do appreciate it around here. And of course, I appreciate it deeply that you are willing to invest part of your life with us. Of course, the legendary Ray Wong himself. Pick up a copy of his book, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Surviving and Thriving in a World of Digital Giants. And you can check Ray out on Disrupt TV. Um, And you can find them on the internet at Constellation Research or Constellation, the letter R, dot com. That's Constellation, the letter R, dot com. My friends at OneLifeFullyLived.org are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check them out, the number one, LifeFullyLived.org. My friends at Bottleneck.online have been uh, physically distancing long before that was a thing. You see, they are the world's first dedicated distant assistants. Check out bottleneck.online for a legendary assistant. My friends at Atranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years, and they have a rapid relaunch program if you need to get a new site up soon. Check out at 
R-E.net. And my friends at Warrior Angels with an S, rescue.org, are the legendary nonprofit helping to get people out of some of the most terrifying places on earth, including Afghanistan. Check out Warrior Angels Rescue.org today and dig deep into your wallet. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. It contains uh, content and information known to the state of California to cause radically different thinking. All rights do remain perturbed. We are produced and edited by the GOAT, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. It's one of my top five. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do legendary technical execution, and they're responsible for our digital presence and Lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon. Web development by the brothers RJ and EX Bobis. Thank you, gentlemen. And Cedric Biros uh, handles our graphics and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack. Our accountants are three balance sheets to the win. Also, uh, you need to know your, your spouse just texted. It's okay. You can go to Lockhead.com right now and subscribe to Category Pirates. Uh, hey, Pius, uh, Pius drivers, <laughs> Prius drivers, and Tesla drivers, remember, the left lane is the fast lane. Please pull over and let us by. Everything is the way that it is because somebody changed the way that it was. Listen to the Tragically Hip. Betty White was right. Thank you, Candy Danny. She keeps all the trains running on time. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Vladimir Putin. Sorry, Vlad. We just ran out of time for you. That's it. Please stay safe. Uh, stay legendary. And until we're, ge- uh, <laughs> until we're together again, you know, um, if you're going to have a podcast, you should really learn how to talk and how words work. Until we are together again, (laughs) please follow your different.